In his book entitled Prayer, Richard Foster identifies 21 types of prayer. One chapter is called The Prayer of Tears. And in that chapter, Richard Foster simply writes, it is the intimate and ultimate awareness that our sin cuts us off from the full fellowship of God's presence. The prayer of tears is the intimate and ultimate awareness that it is our sin that cuts us off from the full fellowship of God's presence. Today we begin a very timely sermon series in the book of Nehemiah simply entitled Rebuild. As we navigate a post-COVID world of ministry, it is time for us as a church to re-engage, reboot, relaunch, dare I say rebuild. And the best way to start a spiritual rebuilding process is in prayer. So this morning, I invite you to join me in a prayer of tears. Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to read verses 4 to 11 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 4. I'll conclude at verse 11. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. For I was a cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good and so great. Thank you for hearing our prayers. And on this day, I pray that you will give your servant success today. Help me to preach. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage begins with Nehemiah saying that when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. It begs the question, what are the, these things that Nehemiah heard prompting him to sit down and weep? 
in order to answer that question and get a better understanding of this story, we need to get our historical bearings. In the year 586 BC, the unthinkable took place. The barbaric Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. Not only did they torch the temple and destroy the walls, but they also deported some of the best and brightest Israelites. For 70 years, the people of God were in exile. For 70 long years, God's people were on foreign soil. They were there because of their own disobedience. God had been consistent in his proclamation through the prophets that if my people continue down this path of disobedience, I will use a pagan nation to discipline them. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And the Babylonians came in and they captured, captivated the Israelites, took them to a foreign land with foreign gods. And they were there for 70 years. By the time you get to the year 539 BC, there's a new superpower on the playground. It's the Persians. They are the new bully of the Middle East. The Persians have smacked around the Babylonians, and now the Persians are in charge. In the year 539 BC, it's the Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus, who issues this decree enabling some Jews to go back to the sacred city of Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding the temple and refortifying the city. Now, more than one person has asked the question, why did this pagan Persian king named Cyrus become favorably disposed toward the Jewish people? And the political pundits of the day simply said the reason Cyrus did this was because he needed a stronger presence along the Mediterranean coast. The Persians had flexed their muscles, but there were some Greeks, there were some Egyptians that were beginning to build up military might. And so the Persian Empire needed a strong fortress, needed a strong fortified city on the area of the Mediterranean coast. And who better to do it than the Jews as they go back to rebuild the temple there in the sacred city? Now, friends, I have no doubt that that's exactly what happened politically speaking. I have no reason to suspect that somehow that's incorrect. But I prefer what Ezra wrote. In Ezra's memoirs, Ezra is a contemporary of Nehemiah, Ezra, Ezra simply wrote this, that the heart of the king was in the hand of God, and God moved the heart of Cyrus so that he would be favorably disposed towards the Jews. He made a proclamation and put it into writing. I like what Ezra said. Ezra reminds us that this world is a theocracy, which means that God is on his throne and God never abdicates his throne and God is always in charge. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Nations rise and nations fall. But it is God who appoints the king and the queen. It is God who appoints the monarch and the president. It is God who establishes the Congress and parliament. It is God who sets up the kingdoms it is God who puts rulers into place, but make no mistake about it, our God is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is in charge of all jurisdiction. There is nothing outside of his uh, stretch. He is in charge of every nation. And you and I need to be reminded of that today. 
For when we hear of civil unrest, when we hear of political uprising, when we hear of of difficulty in our nation or nations abroad, we need to be informed for we are salt and light, but we do not need to be afraid because our God is in charge. He is the one who holds the hearts of the monarchs in his hand and he moves them in accordance with his perfect plan. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of God Almighty. Let it be said of us that we are God's people, that we depend upon him, and we acknowledge this world, while it might not be our home, it is our Father's world, and he rules this place with grace and truth. And so we acknowledge that God is in charge of all things. Oh, by the time you get to the year 445 B.C., Nehemiah burst onto the scene. Now, Nehemiah walks across the pages of your scripture 141 years after the Babylonians had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and deported the best and brightest of the Babylonian captivity. He walks across the pages of your scripture 94 years after Cyrus had issued a decree permitting some of the Jews to go back to the sacred city of Jerusalem and to begin the process of rebuilding the temple and refortifying the walls. In other words, Nehemiah comes onto the scene and he is born and raised in captivity. He's still under the regime of the Persian Empire. But now there's a new king. It's no longer Cyrus. It's Artaxerxes. Truth be told, it's Artaxerxes I to distinguish him from Artaxerxes II that will come down the pike. But Artaxerxes I is sitting on the throne. He is ruling and reigning in the 20th year, we are told in the opening lines of the memoirs of Nehemiah. In the 20th year of his reign, Nehemiah became his cupbearer. To say that Nehemiah was the cupbearer is to say that he had a position of significance in the Persian court. He had a great job. Really, he was living in a lap of luxury. To be a cupbearer not only means that he was the one bringing the breakfast, lunch, and dinner to the king, and also that he was the one who would be the first to taste of the cup, eat of the food so that the king would wait to see if the cupbearer dropped dead from poison because if the cupbearer dropped dead then he wouldn't eat the food but if the cupbearer survived then the king would partake so literally every day Nehemiah was putting his own life on the line to have this kind of access to the king required that someone had to be trustworthy it is Warren Wiersbe who reminds us that to be a cupbearer in the king, to the king in these days, meant that Nehemiah had to be handsome, knowledgeable, cultured, witty, winsome, and wise. He had to know how to approach the king. He had to know how to address the king. Because if the cupbearer came on the wrong day, at the wrong time, said something in the wrong way, it could be his own life on the line. So Nehemiah was very winsome. Nehemiah was very cultured. Nehemiah always had the proper swag. Nehemiah always knew how to respond, not just to the cantankerous king, 
but also to the other royal dignitaries that would come from surrounding nations and share a meal with the king. So Nehemiah knew how to hobnob. He knew how to rub elbows with the rich and famous. But Nehemiah always understood that he was a misfit in the Persian court. He knew that this is where he had been planted. But these were not his people. This was not his home. His heart always longed for Israel. His heart always longed for the God of the nation. His, his heart always was learning, uh, yearning and, and, and longing for the Lord. And so he always wanted to know, how was the work going? It had been 94 long years. People had been permitted to go back. But in more than nine decades, the temple had not been rebuilt. The walls had not been refortified around the city. In the opening couple of lines of Nehemiah, we read that some of his brothers came from Jerusalem. Nehemiah pulls them aside and asks for a report. To say that these are Nehemiah's brothers may or may not mean biological brothers. I doubt, I doubt they are. Probably these guys are fellow Jews. So Nehemiah asked the question, how's it going back home? Tell me about the temple. Tell me about the walls. Tell me about God's people. And the report was a sad report. The people are in great trouble and distress. The wall is broken. And the gates are burned with fire. In response, when Nehemiah heard these things, he sat down and wept. In this passage, we will find Nehemiah in three postures. First, he sat down and wept. Friend, what causes you to cry? Some people cry when their favorite team loses at the last second of the ball game. Some people cry when they give their daughter away in marriage. Some people cry when they stub their little toe on the corner of the island in the kitchen. Some people cry when they fail the algebra test. Some people cry when they get pulled over by the police officer. Some people cry when they get a bad report from the doctor. Friend, what prompts you to cry? On this day, when Nehemiah heard these things, he sat down and wept. The walls were broken. The gates burned with fire. Now, Nehemiah understood that uh, the walls not only were literal walls of concrete, but they were symbolic walls. Not just the, the walls were broken, but the people of God were broken. Now, this city of Jerusalem had been fortified by a wall for decade upon decade, but it had been a long time since the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the city of Jerusalem had been in shambles for nearly a century and a half. And, and even though they had been given permission to rebuild the temple, refortify the city, everything was still broken, still torn down, still in ruin, still in shambles. This is not just the city. This is the people of God that were broken. Nehemiah, he knew that the people had become complacent. I mean, they had had decades to 
reestablish the wall. But they became distracted. They became lethargic. Later, we will understand that the reason they became so distracted was because the Gentiles that were now living in and around Jerusalem, they kept them from their work. The present crisis kept them paralyzed. They did not do the work of God because the present crisis that was going on in their life. I hope that the lightning bolt of analogy is now flashing across the screen of your mind because could it be, church, that here we are after this global pandemic and some of us need to rebuild because we've become complacent in the work of God. Because of this crisis, we've become lethargic. Because of what we've been going through over the last 13, 14 months, because of what we've experienced, we have neglected God and his word. And I wonder if we can relate to Nehemiah, that when we take a look at our lives, when we take a look at the lives of God's people, God's church, not just in this community, but throughout the country, throughout the world, that when we see uh, the health of the church, we see there's a great complacency. We see there's a great deal where people are lethargic. And I wonder if that causes us to weep. The walls are broken. The gates are burned down. These are symbols that are supposed to protect the citizens and keep the enemy out. But with a broken life, a broken wall, with life in shambles and in ruin, how could you be protected against the adversary? This is what causes Nehemiah to weep. This imagery of the wall It was very symbolic in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet uses it when he describes God's salvation as a wall that surrounds the people of the Lord. God's salvation that he gives us, it protects us. It it keeps us safe. It protects us from the enemy. And the enemy cannot steal away our salvation because it's like a wall that fortifies our lives. Zechariah the prophet will say, that God is like a wall of fire that surrounds his people. The imagery of fire is the imagery of purity and passion. It is God that surrounds us with his holy purity and his passion for you and for others. This imagery of wall, this imagery of strength, the symbol of stability. The wall's broken. Lives are broken. The gates have been burned with fire. The enemy can come and go, wreaking havoc as he pleases. I wonder, friend, does this describe your life? Does it describe the lives of some people that you know and love? God's people were so complacent to the work of God that they had neglected the Lord for a long season. Because of this, Nehemiah sat down and he wept. We are told that uh, for days he grieved, he mourned, he fasted. This is not a fleeting feeling. This is a lingering longing. For day upon day upon day he is grieving, he's mourning, he's fasting. He's praying unto the Lord. He sits down and he weeps because of the brokenness of his life and the brokenness of God's people. And he continues to sit and to weep. He mourns, he grieves, he fasts. I wonder, uh, is fasting a normal part of your spiritual discipline? I gotta be honest with you. Uh, There are far too many times that I have neglected fasting. I mean, 
I fast when I sleep. I suspect you do as well. But other than that, for most of us, we don't think very much about fasting. The purpose of fasting is to neglect ourselves of food and in the process to remind ourselves of our dependency upon the Lord. That when we crave hunger, we ought to crave God. And we use those moments when we would give it to food and we give it to the Lord. And we feast on faith by Christ. And we pray unto him, and, and when we fast, we, we go without food for a season, for a time, for a meal or two, for a day or two, so that we can remind our body of how dependent we are on the Lord. This is the situation for Nehemiah. I mean, he is grieving, he is mourning, he is fasting. Friend, can I ask you, when was the last time you wept over your own ruin? When was the last time you shed a tear over the shambles of your life? When was the last time you shed a tear over the shambles of somebody else that you know and love, that you count as a friend or a family member, a coworker, a teammate, or a classmate? When was the last time that you were broken over the brokenness of somebody else? When was the last time you were broken over your own personal brokenness? This is the picture of Nehemiah. He sat down and he wept because the city was broken and the people were broken. Second posture, he knelt down and prayed. The majority of Nehemiah chapter 1 is a prayer, and therein lies one of the great themes of this entire book. There are 13 chapters. There are 12 prayers in those 13 chapters. It would seem that on nearly every page, every page is peppered with a prayer. And Nehemiah begins his memoirs. He begins this spiritual diary in prayer. The majority of these 11 verses constitute a prayer that he prayed to the Lord. I want you to take notice of this prayer. In verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He identifies God as the great and awesome God. Friend, you may not always know what to pray, but may you never forget to whom you pray. You pray to a great, awesome God. We know him by name. We know he is our redeemer, our sustainer, our savior. We know that we pray to a triune God of grace and power, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God. We pray to God who is great and awesome. And it's great to pray to a great God, isn't it? Because when I have a great problem, I need to give it to a great God. When I need a great provision, I need to go to a great God. When I need a great healing, I need to talk to a great God. When I need great forgiveness, I need to be welcomed by a great God. When I need great grace, I just need to go to the great God. Don't ever forget to whom we pray. We pray to a great and awesome God. Don't ever diminish him. Don't ever demote him. He is God all by himself. Listen, he's not up for re-election. He's the eternal God. You cannot demote him. You cannot, uh, uh, you, you cannot kick him out of office. He is the God who is all by himself. He is a great and awesome God. Don't ever forget the God to whom we pray. This God is able to handle every circumstance, every crisis, every situation that you bring to him and that you lay at his feet. He is a great 
and awesome God. On two occasions in this prayer, Nehemiah says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer offered by your servant. That statement or form of it uh, forms bookends around the prayer. We read of it in verse 6. We read of it in verse 11. Let your ear be attentive. Let your ear be attentive. In other words, Nehemiah says, the reason I pray is because I know that you will listen. I know the Bible commands us to pray. The Bible instructs us to pray. The Bible tells us that when we pray in Jesus' name, that the atmosphere changes, the temperature of the room changes, it changes my circumstance, my situation, it changes myself, it changes the people around me. I know all of that. But can I just be honest with you? The reason I pray is because I'm convinced that God listens. We do not pray to a deaf God. He is a God who listens. He is the God of the world. And yet, this God of the cosmos listens to you and listens to you and listens to you when you call him by name. When you go and pray to him, he listens. Nehemiah says, let your ear be attentive. And the reason I'm convinced that the ear of God was attentive to the prayer of Nehemiah is because Nehemiah prayed with honest confession and with a hunger for holiness. Look with me later in verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He begins with honest confession. Is this how you pray? When you kneel to pray, is this how you pray? He began with honest confession. I confess the sins that we have committed. He does not dismiss, he does not deflect, he does not defend his actions. He just agrees with God, this is very wicked. I find it ironic that he lumps himself with the sins of his forefathers. He doesn't say their sins, their issues, their problems. After all, Nehemiah wasn't around 141 years earlier when the Babylonians came into Judah. Not around when Cyrus issued the decree that some of them could go back and labor and work. He was born and raised in captivity. There he was now as a cupbearer to the king, and yet he acknowledges, we have sinned. I'm just as guilty as they are. I'm just as sinful as they are. He doesn't diminish his own sin. In essence, what he's saying is what Paul will tell Timothy, that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. I'm the chief. I'm the worst sinner that I know. You've heard me say that before. That's not just preacher talk. That's biblical talk. I am the worst sinner that I know. I am well aware of my sin. I don't know all of your sin. I know some of your sins just because you tell me, but I don't know all of your sin. I know all of my sin, and I act very wickedly at times. I have to agree with Nehemiah, and so do you. And Nehemiah begins with honest confession. He prays like David prayed. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Let the joy of your salvation return unto me. David, honest in his confession. Nehemiah prays like Isaiah will pray. 
When he says in his vision in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the earth. The seraphs were flying around, six-winged creatures with two wings. They covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were saying one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how does Isaiah respond? You might anticipate for Isaiah to chime in in the singing and the worship. But no, Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm as good as dead. I'm unglued because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now we know from that story that God provides healing Forgiveness, provision for Isaiah. But in that moment, when you expect Isaiah to respond in worship, he responds by saying, I am sinful. I have been very wicked. I have disobeyed what you've told me to do. Nehemiah, he prays like the apostle Peter. Peter was confronted by Jesus after Peter had fished all night long. And realizing The identity of Jesus, Peter just simply says, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. You are holy, I am not. You are perfect, I am imperfect. You are righteous, I am raunchy. We say, like Nehemiah said, I have acted very wickedly. Can you agree with me today that your sin is wicked? You know, sometimes uh, we go to God in prayer. If you're anything like me, you kind of just give God your uh, grocery list of what you want, right? Uh, God, if you can help this person, that would be great. Watch over him as he's having surgery. Uh, That marriage needs your attention, Lord. And if you can help me with that scenario, I'd really appreciate it because i got to have an awkward conversation. And if you can go before me so that I don't even have to have the conversation, that would be really swell, Lord. So if you can help me out by taking care of all these problems and all these issues, that would be swell. And to God be the glory. Amen. And sometimes that's exactly how we pray. We just give God all of our junk and we want him to fix it because we don't know how to fix it. But the reality is we need to go to God acknowledging he's a great and awesome God and we go to him in honest confession and we acknowledge and agree with Nehemiah and we agree with David and Isaiah and Peter and on and on and on. What we have done is very wicked in your sight. And I am just as wicked as you are. I am just as wicked as anybody else. And so we confess it unto you. The reason I think that God was attentive to the prayer of Nehemiah is because Nehemiah began with honest confession. But he didn't stop there. He had a hunger for the holiness of God. Look at verse 8 and following. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful. I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your ex- if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. When Nehemiah says to the Lord, remember the words of Moses, he's not calling God an absent-minded professor. He's not saying, hey, did you forget what you said? No, he's not reminding God, he's reminding himself. I remember the words of Moses, for you foretold that if we persisted in disobedience, you would use a pagan nation to scatter us. And that's exactly what you've done. And rightfully so. Because we made a mockery of your holiness. 
But, what a holy conjunction, but, what a great word, but if my people return to me, I will gather them back unto myself, independent of the fact that if they've gone to the farthest horizon, for my group of grace can reach them, my arm of salvation can sustain them, I can reach them, even if in the farthest coast, I can bring them back unto myself. Friend, I want to tell you, God knows who you are, how you are, and he knows where you are. He knows what you've been up to. He knows what you've been doing. He knows what nobody else knows in your life. He knows the thoughts you've had. He knows the feelings in your heart. He knows exactly what's been going on. He knows the wicked deeds that have been done. And God reminds us of his holiness that if we turn to him, he will turn to us and rescue us. He'll bring us back into himself. You see the imagery of the prodigal father as he runs to his children. This is the image of God. It's always been the image of God. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. It's not two different gods. It's one and the same God that our God has always longed to be longed after. Our God has always pursued those who long to pursue him. Friend, when you pray, do you have a hunger for the holiness of God? Where you want to be exactly where God wants you to be. You want to be doing what God has told you to do. You want to be saying what God tells you to say. You want to be thinking what God tells you to think. You want to be feeling how God tells you to feel. This is Nehemiah. Nehemiah begins with honest confession. He also has a hunger for the holiness of the Lord. When you kneel down to pray, is this how you pray? Are you honest? Are you hungry? Are you honest in your confession? Are you hungry for the holiness of God? How long has it been since you talked with the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secrets? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your heart felt at ease? How long since your mind knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew that he cared for you? When you pray, does your prayer sound like this? Nehemiah sat down and wept. Nehemiah knelt down and he prayed. The third posture. Nehemiah stood up and he worked. You get to the end of the prayer and he simply says, "Uh, please grant your servant favor in the eyes of this man. Who's the this man he's talking about? King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah realizes, um, I have been called for this task. But in order for me to do this task, I need the favor, the blessing. I need the paperwork. I need the resources. I need the provision of this man. This man that I gain an audience with every day, multiple times a day. I need the blessing of this man in order to do your work that you've called me to do. So now in this moment, he stands up to work. He gives a little tagline at the very end. I was a cupbearer to the king. It's almost as if everything comes together for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, yes, now I know. This is why I've been here. I thought I've been in exile all my life. I thought I've been forgotten by God all my life. I thought I was a misfit and a nobody. But Nehemiah says, I've been put here for such a time as this, to borrow the words of Esther. I've been put here on purpose and for a purpose. I think you've heard that before. I've been put here on purpose because God has a work for me to do. And it wasn't until he sat down and wept knelt down and prayed, then he stood up to work, realizing I am a cupbearer on purpose. It's not that I'm here by accident. 
No, God has put me here. Out of all the Jews who are in the position to have the provision that is needed in an earthly sense in order to do this task of returning to Jerusalem to refortify the city, there's no one better than Nehemiah. Because now Nehemiah realizes this is why I'm a cupbearer to the king. This is why I'm here. It's no joke. It's no accident. I've been divinely appointed for this very moment, for this very time. So God, please give me favor as I go in front of this man. Because he'll give me the papers. He'll give me the resources. He'll give me the building blocks. He'll give me the passageway. So I can get from point A to point B and do the task you've called me to do. God, I thought I was forgotten, but you knew exactly where I was. Can I get an amen? Does anybody ever feel that way? God, do you remember me? God, do you know where I am? God, do you know what I'm going through? And all the while, God says, yes, yes, yes. Just sit down and weep. Kneel down and pray. And then you're strong enough to stand up and work. But don't ever get that backwards. I must confess to you that there are times that I get those postures backwards. I try to stand up and work. I got work to do. I got things that God has called me to do. I've got a divine assignment upon my life. I've got to stand up and work. And sometimes I try to stand up and work in my own power. And I fail. And when I fail, it causes me to kneel down and pray. And when I'm driven to my knees, so I kneel down and pray, the Holy Spirit convicts me of my wicked selfishness and pride, and it prompts me to sit down and weep. Sometimes I get it backwards, and it never works well. We have to first sit down and weep because the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of the lives of people that we care so much about. And then we kneel down to pray and we kneel to pray uh, as we are honest in our confession of our wicked sin and we are hunger, hungry for the holiness of God. And then and only then can we stand up and do the work that God has called you, positioned you, crafted you, created you to do. You can't do what I do. I can't do what you do. But you can only do what God has made you to do. And it's only after you sit down and weep, kneel down and pray that you can stand up and work. When I think about that last statement, I was a cupbearer to the king. You have to give me some permission because it's just how my mind goes. I'm reminded of the king who bore the cup. You see, there was a king who became a cupbearer. There was a king who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. This king stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, lived a perfect life. He came to the sacred city of Jerusalem the very last week of his life. And as he came to the sacred city of Jerusalem, this king who bore the cup, he sat down and he wept. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And this king who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, he sat down and wept outside Jerusalem. And then he knelt down and prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. 
It's there that Jesus prayed with such earnest that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He prayed this prayer not once or twice, but three times. He was furrowing faithfulness deep into his spirit. He entered the garden that night in a bit of despair. He walked out determined because he knew that God had commissioned him, commanded him to bear the cup and drink the cup, to to, to drink every last drop of God's holy hostility towards your sin and mine. And then Jesus stood to work. He went on that Friday and he was interviewed, he was in a court, he was assigned a criminal's death They placed Jesus there in the stocks. They put him on the whipping post. And there Jesus was beaten for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Oftentimes, criminals, men who would stand on the whipping post, they would be whipped by Roman soldiers with a cat of nine tails. And they would just lie there as a mangled mass of flesh. But Jesus stood and took the whipping that you deserved and I deserved. They strapped a crossbeam to his back. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there they stretched him wide, hoisted him into the air. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. The work is done. Jesus sat and wept, knelt and prayed. Then he stood hung on the cross and he did the work. He did the work that only he could do. He did the work he was sent to do. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. He stayed there for the rest of Friday, all day on Saturday, even into the early hours on Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose stood because of the work he had done. He stood over death, hell, the devil, and the grave. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb victorious because he stood to do the work that of your salvation and mine. Friend, I gotta tell you that when I think about Jesus, I know what the apostle Paul said. Therefore, he has given the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When I consider my savior, when I think about my king who bore my cup, when I think about the king who bore the cup, of condemnation sometimes it causes me just to sit down and weep sometimes it prompts me to kneel down and pray sometimes it causes me to stand up and to work but regardless I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he can love me a sinner condemned unclean but oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be oh how marvelous and oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for me friend this was the king who bore the cup so if God is calling us to re-engage relaunch reboot rebuild let us first and foremost build like Nehemiah he built on the foundation of prayer prayer of God to the God of prayer. And he prayed 
a prayer of tears. It was the intimate, ultimate awareness that it was his sin that cut him off from the full fellowship of God's presence. So because of his brokenness and the brokenness of those he loved, he sat and wept. He knelt and prayed. He stood to do the work God had called him to do. Friends, it's time to rebuild. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for uh, your love, kindness, and grace that you've lavished upon us. Lord, some people here today simply just need to come, sit, and weep. Still others of us need to kneel and pray here at the altar. Still others of us need to stand and do the work that you've called us to do. So Lord, help us to respond in this moment of your invitation. Help us to do it with holiness, with eagerness. Oh Father, help us to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.